Good, good. Good to be with you guys. And uh, David's already prayed, but I'm going to pray one more time. Can never pray enough. Lord, just bless this time. Give me uh, clarity of thought and words to say and give everyone, every one of us ears to hear. I pray that this would be a strengthening time in your word, in our Christian walk, in our Christian faith, that it would not be just information but also transformation. Uh, Lord, bless your word. Thank you that it is your delight to always honor your word. So do that tonight, we pray. Jesus be glorified in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're in Romans 7 tonight. And uh, one of these tough chapters that really um, preachers kind of stay away from it because it's just not easy to preach on. It's, you know, we, we don't, we're not all Jews here that were under the law and now trying to learn that the law doesn't, uh, that we're not under the bondage of the law anymore, because most of us never really thought about being under the bondage of the Mosaic law. But as Christians, we do put ourselves under rules and regulations, so there's, there's definitely some relevance there, and it's a key piece in really understanding our position that David was bringing out last week as Christians in Jesus. So um, I want to kind of just give a little background of what we've already covered, and so you guys can have an understanding of that and see how it all goes together. I'm probably not going to necessarily um, try to go through this phrase by phrase, but more of a telescopic view of this chapter so that you have a rough idea of it when we walk out of here, and that will help you uh, in your understanding of the Christian life. Theology is important, okay? And understanding books of the Bible and how they go together is huge because if you see the scope of how a book goes together, you can put the pieces in when you read it, and the book will make a whole lot more sense to you than if you don't do that. So uh, that's why I, I just love the fact that here at Thrive we're going through books of the Bible. Uh, I've seen more people grow quicker in their faith and be established by books of the Bible. I, I'm going to digress for just a second. Lots of Christians today are seeking an experience. You want an experience to help strengthen your faith or make God become more real to you. And so you got people that line up and they want some kind of prophetic word. It's okay. I believe in prophetic words, all right? Uh, some people, they want some kind of impartation or some sort of experience so they can feel like they're closer to God and that they're experiencing God in a greater way than they did before. But I'm here to tell you, and I'm not trying to sound like, you know, somebody older adult that just comes along and says, well, when I was your age. But I'm here to tell you, at age 63, with hair that is kind of white, all right, all right, and, and someone who's been in ministry for almost 40 years, I'm going to tell you, there is no experience that is going to make Jesus more real and more relevant to you and where you actually experience the presence of God in your life, the fullness of the Holy Spirit as rivers of living water flowing out of you, like picking up the Bible and reading God's Word and saying, Lord, with your help, 
I'm going to walk in this, live in it, obey it, follow you through what you show me today in your word. That is more transformational than any experience that you will ever have in some other way. Amen? So, um, I'm not trying to just hammer something really home and, and, and too far here. I'm just trying to say that that's the reality of it, right? Because I've experienced a lot of really cool stuff in my Christian life. And uh, for a long time, uh, people have been after me. You need to write a book. So I started to write a book. Well, you need to finish the book. And so far, God hasn't led me to finish it. But they hear all these different experiences like, wow, I want to experience that. But again, I'm going to say, there's no experience like saturating yourself with God's word, coming to an understanding, seeing how it all goes together, and then allowing the Holy Spirit through his strength to live it out in your life. Okay? So, um, we've been in Romans, and the first five chapters are about something called, theological term, justification. Okay? Something that just simply means to be made righteous or to be made holy, where God declares you or counts you that. The next chapter that we had the last couple of weeks, chapter 6, a new subject is introduced. It's not justification, it's sanctification. Sanctification means to what? Be, okay. So, some theologians would say it's simply just being made holy, okay? But I'm going to try to simplify it more than that. Sanctification, okay, there is positional sanctification, which God already has declared every one of you holy. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are viewed in God's sight as just as righteous as Jesus. Because the one who knew no sin, the only perfectly righteous one, was made sin for us, that happened at the cross, so that we might become, what? The righteousness of God in him. If you know Jesus, you are in Christ, and you are just as holy in God's sight, positionally, as Jesus. Practically, you may not be there. Kind of a, in, in Bible school, they teach you something about this is your state, and this is your standing. My standing before God is perfectly holy and righteous. My state before God might not be that way. And practical sanctification is simply becoming less of what I used to be and more like Jesus. In the next chapter on this thing on sanctification, there's a verse that almost all of you know, Romans 8:28. What does it say? What does Romans 8.28 say? Okay. Everybody says all things work together for good. Okay. Here's what it really says. It starts this way. And we know. Not and we think so. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay. And whom he called... He what? What's that? Justified. And he, those he justified, he what? What? You got it? 
Sanctified? So that we what? I think this is something like this. So that we might become conformed to the image of his son. Anybody read that? Okay. So what God's whole purpose in saving you and me is to help us in this practical life through all the trials and all the all things work together for good. It doesn't mean all things work together for good so that even though bad things happen to you in the past, everything's going to be wonderful in the future. You're going to get a new car and a better house and a cuter wife or girlfriend or something, okay? Or better boyfriend. It isn't that. It's conforming us to the image of his son. So I'm going to say practical sanctification is becoming less of what you used to be before you knew Jesus and more like Jesus. God's whole purpose in all of us, in all that we're doing, dealing with right down here, he didn't just save us and take us to heaven, is to put us through this process where he's conforming us to the image of his son. So when you see somebody who acts like Jesus, that's part of the sanctification process through the Holy Spirit. Can't do that in your own strength, all right? So six, seven, and eight have to deal with that, all right? So I want to back up and I'm going to say that in chapter 5, we learn something really new at the very tail end of this whole thing on justification. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. A little bit later on, we find out that there's two races of people. I'm going to be racist tonight. All right. Only two races that Romans has. Only two races that God shows in the Bible. And two heads of each of those races. All right? One of those heads is Adam. And the other head is the second Adam, who is Jesus. Okay? God put Adam and Eve in this garden, this perfect paradise as it were, and he gave them a test of love. One thing don't touch, everything else you can enjoy. And what do they do? Through the tempter, they choose to sin. Okay? And when sin came in, it plunged the whole race to be under sin. S-I-N. And just to be a little theological here to te tease your minds a little bit, there's a difference between sin and sins. Theologians would tell you this. Sins are these little practical things that you commit. Like when you lie, when you steal, when you cheat, when you covet something. People don't see that one as much. Those are sins, okay? But there's also this thing called sin. And that sin is this fallen depraved nature that you had when you got born into this world that came from great-grandpappy Adam, okay? And so when I was born into this world, I was born and became a child and grew up as a part of Adam's sinful race. David says, I was born in sin, and shaped in iniquity. That's a big word, okay? So all are under sin. That's Adam's race. But then Jesus comes along, and he becomes the head of a new race. And everyone in this room tonight is either a part of Adam's race or a part of 
Jesus race. Your, your federal head, so to speak, is either Adam or Jesus. Who are you lined up behind? You're lined up behind Adam until you repent of your sin, you look by faith to the cross, you see the substitutionary death of Jesus, you put your faith and trust in that, and by grace, God takes you and moves you out of Adam's race behind Jesus. And the cool thing is, I believe, even Adam got moved out of his own race and put in Jesus. Remember, God clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skin. And he had to walk over to an innocent animal and say, I'm going to have to kill you. Because i got to illustrate here that the innocent has to die for the guilty. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So I'm going to shed some blood here. It's a picture of my son coming one day and dying on the sin. He clothed them with coats of skin. If you look at it, it's singular, not plural. One sacrifice for the two people. All right? So when we put our faith in Jesus, we get moved under that head. All right. So if Jesus is my head, if he is my representative, this is the truth that Paul's teaching here in Romans, then when I'm going to interrupt myself right here. How many people died when Jesus went to the cross? I asked this question once to a group of young adults, and their wheels were turning because some people were like, well, wait a minute. There was the thief on the cross he, that died, that repented. There was the other thing. He died too, but he was, as far as we know, didn't repent. So that's Jesus and two people. But wait a minute. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. So there's four now. Because he said, when Jesus died on that cross, I died. Now, Michael, you quoted me a verse before we went earlier. What, what was that verse again? So what? As in Adam all died, so? Okay. So if you are in Christ, so as Adam, because you were a, a child of Adam, you were, all died in basically spiritually in sin. In Jesus, you've been made alive. So not only did the thief that repented die, and not only did Paul say, when my representative, Jesus, hung on that cross and took my sins and exchanged my unrighteousness for his righteousness, but Paul says, he didn't just die on a cross to make atonement, but he also died as my representative. So in his death, since I'm in Christ, right, then I died too. And if I died when Jesus came out as my head or representative in resurrection, I also rose too so that I can serve in a new way, not in the power of trying to keep the law or doing things in my own strength or my own energy, but through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, we already said, Romans 5, we saw these two federal heads, these two races, you Adamites, you, okay? 
Now you're Jesusites if you know Jesus, okay? All right? That's okay. I don't mind being a Jesusite. Just Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Just Jesus. Okay. Um, I get to chapter 6, where, where it was been preached on the last two weeks here, and I find out in verse 4, what does it say there? He says, We were therefore buried with him through the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Just as Jesus came out in resurrection, raised from the dead in great power, you know, w- went out there and uh, met with Peter and, and uh, walked through walls and did all the stuff that he did, uh, all the things that Jesus did even after he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, that new life that Jesus, his resurrected life, I have in me because I'm in Christ. So the whole theme of chapter 6 was when Jesus died on the cross, I died to who I used to be. And I, what he's saying, if positionally you are in Christ, and positionally when Jesus died, you died, and when Jesus rose, you rose, then practically you need to live that way. And the only way you can do that is letting the Holy Spirit now live out in your life. So somebody said, if you heard Michael give this, I can tell you exactly what he said. It's knowing, reckoning, and yielding. If you know that your old man, I'll say this again, the old man died. Now, this is a very profound statement, so you, I don't want you to leave here and not know this. The old man died. Who was the old man? That's a person you used to be before you came to know Jesus. He died through the death of Christ. And now you are alive through the resurrection of Christ. This is deep stuff, okay? So I'm trying to make it simple. Are you with me? Am I leaving you this? Okay. So... If that's the case, then take these hands and feet and these members and now make them instruments of righteousness or weapons of righteousness. Because he said, it didn't profit you. What benefit was it to you when you lived that old life? I mean, living a sinful life is just not beneficial. I think about when my wife and I first were involved in ministry and we were involved in street ministry and rescue, ministry, rescue mission ministry in Portland, Oregon. I remember walking, there's this guy on the street. He's a Hispanic dude, okay? Told you I'm going to be racist tonight, all right? He's loved by God just as much as anybody else, okay? I don't care whether you're Asian or black or Hispanic or whatever. You might even be Caucasian, some of you, all right? Um, doesn't matter. God loves you all the same. This Hispanic dude, he's laying there. And he's on the street, and his hair is all matted, and his face is all bruised. And he, he gets just enough strength to raise his head. And I see his hands, and his fingernails are all ungroomed and covered with filth. And he's got a little plastic bag, and he takes the little spray bottle of paint lacquer, and he'd spray it into that plastic bag, 
He'd huff that, those vapors, until he'd pass out and his head go down. Sometimes crash down and more bruise on his face. And then he'd, a little bit later, he'd start to come to and pull out that bag and get just enough strength to spray that lacquer in there. And then, and I, thought, I thought of this verse. What benefit to live that way? That's depravity. No, some of you say, well, I'm not like that. But it doesn't really matter because in God's sight, there's no difference. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Some gal who just came out of this really horrific life, and she's sitting in some church group, and they're talking, and she says, and, and the guy says to her, one of the little self-righteous church boys, he says, uh, this really, it really was a miracle that God saved you. And she looked back at him and said, yeah. It's just as big of a miracle that he saved you. See, we have like just comparing yourselves among yourselves is not wise. It's just Jesus. It's just the cross. So we've been put in this new position. So Romans 6, I died to who I used to be, and now I yield my members as instruments of righteousness. So I need to reckon or count that I'm dead. You ever done that? If you're a Christian, you need to learn how to count. I'm dead. Because the Bible says so. When Jesus died, I died. And now, I reckon so. And then, since I know that to be the case, now I can turn around and yield my members, my hands, my feet, my mouth, my talents, my abilities, my strength as instruments of righteousness. It's like the World War II, you know, the bombs were dropping over in England, and there was this statue of Jesus in front of a church. Some of you heard me tell the story. And one of those bombs exploded, actually blew the hands off the statue. So after the war, they said, oh, we better fix this. You know, this, this is supposed to be Jesus. We don't know who, what Jesus looked like, but I know he's not a statue, okay? Um, he's a son of God with power. They, so they, they're going to like, we better put his hands on, and then somebody else came along and said, no, no. They put up a sign that says, we are his hands. And that's really true. That's good. That's good. So, so now, the best way to quit sinning is not to focus on sin, but to focus, what did Michael say? Or Shukratov said it, whoever said it. The best defense, Michael said it, is a good offense. See? If I'm trying to quit smoking, right? Like I have this terrible smoking habit, and I want to quit it. So the best thing to do would not be to lock me in a room with nothing in that room but a pack of matches and a pack of cigarettes and say, you stay in there for two hours and don't smoke. And I could be sitting in there looking at that. I don't want to smoke. I don't want to smoke. Smoking's bad. Ugh, it's bad for your health. It's a filthy habit. <laughs> Pardon me for any of you guys that smoke, right? You take me up in the mountains, like climbing Mount Eleanor with, with one of the Ludwigs, okay? And I'm up there on that mountain enjoying God's creation and everything, and the matches are five miles back at the car. I, I'm not even going to be thinking about it. I'm just, I'm focused on something completely different. Robert Murray McShane, this famous preacher, Scottish preacher from way back in the 1700s or whenever it was, 1800s, he made this comment. He said, it's okay to have introspection. It's okay sometimes to look at yourself. But he said, for every 10 looks at yourself, 
You, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. For every one look at yourself, you need 10 looks to Jesus. Okay? Looking unto Jesus, the leader and completer of our faith. So if I get up in the morning and say, God, I don't want to sin. Oh, what? I better not do that. I better not do this. What are you going to do? You're going to sin. But if I get up in the morning and say, God, here I am. You live out through me, through the power of Jesus. And I allow the Holy Spirit to flow out. The last thing I'm going to be thinking about is sin. Okay? Because the best defense. You can, somebody said you can get just as dirty fighting a chimney sweep as you can hugging him. That's true. So don't spend your time fighting sin. Spend your time living for Jesus and letting him live out through you in resurrected power. Take my hands, take my feet, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. All right? So that's sanctification. I get to Romans 7 and now I'm dead not only to sin, but I'm dead to a thing called the law because there were some people there that had Jewish background and they were under law and had been and they still are trying to sort out whether the law is still important in how you live the Christian life. And Paul is going to tell them that you guys died to that too. Okay? Because you are in Christ. You know what his conclusion is going to be? Whenever you see a therefore, you go back and see what it's there for. You ever hear that in the Bible? Whenever you see a therefore, you go back and see what it's there for. Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you were in Christ, you died to sin. You are in a completely righteous position before God. Practically, you're being made more holy. God is using everything good and bad happening in your life to conform you to become less of what you used to be and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. But the moment you repented and accepted Jesus in faith and came in your sins, you received justification. Positionally, you're as righteous before God as you'll ever be. Practically, you are still being made holy. Okay, so I'm going to read this real quick. Don't you know, this is chapter 7, brothers and sisters, and I'm speaking to those who know the law, okay? Because there's a Jewish audience and Gentiles who are familiar with these Jews and what they taught. The law has authority over someone as long as that person lives. For example, by, uh, the, uh, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him so that, uh, uh, to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive. She's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband and is not an adulteress if she is married, if she marries another man. What's he saying there? If you... The law had a certain authority and you had to obey it, that law the same as a marriage contract, as he's using as an illustration, had authority. So if you're married, if Karen and I are married, and she says, well, uh, that doesn't matter. I just go out and um, commit adultery or marry somebody else. She doesn't have that freedom because she's bound to the law 
of her husband. Now, he's saying, in the same way, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whoever she wants to be. She's free from that law. Make sense? Now, Paul turns around in this illustration and he says, that same Old Testament law, be careful because I gave a big talk and I used all these verses one time, you know, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth are come by Jesus Christ, okay? The law and the prophets were until John, but since then the kingdom of God is preached, um, that we are, we are dead to the law, that Christ was the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone who believes. I went through all this stuff about the law and this guy in the audience, he says to me afterwards, well, what about the speed limit? Because the whole time he wasn't thinking of the Mosaic law, he was thinking of the laws that we're told to be subject to, okay? He's not talking about that. He's talking about this Mosaic law. It was, it's, it's a yoke of bondage, Paul says in Galatians. People come along and say, oh, yeah, you still have to keep the Ten Commandments for a long time, not to pick on anybody here. Seventh-day Adventists, okay, taught that you had to keep the Ten Commandments. And then if you didn't worship on Saturday, which the real extreme ones said, if you, if you don't, aren't worshiping on Saturday, that's, you're taking the mark of the beast, okay? And so they were bound by this law. Thankfully, in more recent times, they're becoming more and more clear in their theology, all right? Although most of them still worship on Saturday. Uh, but what Paul is saying is, you died. I know a lady, true story, went to church that I went to in Gresham, Oregon, and she was a very vivacious, capable person. But she was married to this guy who everybody thought was wonderful. But in reality, he, at home, he was kind of a tyrant. And she did her best to put her best foot forward. And she had said her marriage vows. And yeah, he was a Christian and they went to church. But he wasn't an easy man to live with. But everybody on the outside thought, it all looks good. But one day, he got cancer, and he died. And three months later, less than, this guy comes out from Pennsylvania, meets her, and they start a relationship, and they plan a wedding. They're going to get married, like, fairly quick. And people in the church, the elders are like, oh, what are we going to do about this? I mean, Paul's body isn't even cold yet, and his wife, Sharon, she wants to get married. Well, we got to, you know, I don't think this is good. We should talk to him. And a, an old brother, he pulls out this verse and says, a woman is bound to the law of her husband, marriage law, as long as he's alive, but when he's dead, she's free to be married to another man. That was the end of the conversation. She married him. Now, now the guy that she married, his name was John. He was the nicest guy in the world. Plus, he was rich. <laughs> and he took Sharon and gave her a completely different life. And now Sharon's still half the time clearing the table after meals and doing stuff around the house. But it isn't because when she gets home, she's going to get chewed out by her husband because she didn't do it right. It's because she's in love with John. And that is what happened when we accepted Jesus. We got a new husband, so to speak. And it's not the law anymore because through the death of Jesus, I died to the law. Is the law bad? Nope. He's going to go on and say, the law actually, in one sense, exacerbated sin. How's it do that? All right? Really, really quick. Um, 
Verses 4 and 5, we died to the law. Verse 6, we're delivered from the law to serve in a new way. There's a new motivation. What was the ministry of the law all about? One, it reveals sin. Paul, he was, remember he said, it's concerning the law, outwardly blameless. He said, you know which one slew me? Thou shalt not covet. If you're coveting something, people can't see it, can they? Right? In the Old Testament, it said, don't covet at somebody's other house, don't cover their lands, don't covet somebody else's wife. But you can hide that. And Paul, like, man, I'm a really righteous guy. And one day he's reading his Bible and he's looking at the Ten Commandments, and one of them says, Thou shalt not covet. Oh, man, I'm guilty. The law slew him, killed him, he said. So the purposes of the law were to reveal sin, but one of the things that it also did was arouse sin. Verses 8 and 9. You ever see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch? One, one guy I know, he was like a science teacher, and he'd have all these equipment, and he'd tell people, don't touch it. And what did they all do? They all touched it. So then he comes along, and he says, he put up a different sign that says, and, and they quit touching it. But it said something like this, uh, you know, uh, high voltage, you know, uh, warning, high voltage, don't, don't touch. And, and, and anyway, the high voltage thing, that worked, okay? But normally speaking, sometimes you have something that is like a sign that tells you not to do something. It just makes you want to do it all the more, right? Like little kids, don't play in the water. Remember that? And what would you do? You ran to the water. So one of the things that the law did, law did is it aroused sin. It made sin just come out all the more, all right? But finally, one of the, the last of all, I'm just going to read this real quick. And he says, um, I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Uh, nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it, was uh, it used what is good to bring about my death so that uh, the commandment, uh, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Before the law, sin was in the world. The Bible tells us that. After the law, it became much more evident because the law, Galatians says, is like a schoolmaster to bring us to God. The purpose of it, as we always say, the law is like a mirror. It doesn't, it doesn't wash our face, but it shows us we have a dirty face. Only the blood of Jesus can wash our face. So something that was meant to bring life actually brought death. What does he mean by that? If you go to some third world countries or some countries, I should just say, that are not like super modern, they have zoos. And they don't have the fences and the pens like we have. And so you'll walk up there and they'll have a sign that says, you know, danger, like lion, you know, no fence, don't, don't step over the pit into the cage. And people step over the pit into the cage and what happens? It brings death. 
But it was meant, the sign was meant to bring life. It's not that the law actually brings life. It's only through Jesus. But the law was good. The problem was us. And so the whole thing is if you try to keep these rules, he's going to go on to say, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Anybody ever been there? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And that's where he moves and he says, I thank God. It's through Jesus. And everything in Romans 8 is life through the Spirit. Now he realizes, I gotta, I'm dead to sin. I yield my members as instruments of righteousness. I died to the law, trying to keep rules and regulations, just makes it worse. And now, instead, I don't serve by the letter of the law. I serve by the Spirit, he says here. I now have the opportunity to let the Holy Spirit move, live out through me. And so Romans 8, you will find in Romans 7, I, 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 I. 24 times he says the word I. Okay, he's got eye trouble. He's looking at him instead of Jesus, like Robert Murray Mishane was saying. But I get to Romans 8, it's something different. It's the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. I don't even know how to pray as I should, Paul says. But the Spirit in me, amen, makes intercession for me with groanings that can't be put into human language. It's life in the Spirit. Sanctification will never come by rule-keeping. It will never come by focus on sin. It comes as I know that I died with Jesus. I count it that way. I consider it that way. And I yield my members as instruments of righteousness. I know I died to keeping rules and regulations or Old Testament law. And the only way I can live it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. And if you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? You may not be filled with the Spirit, but you have the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is sealed with the Holy Spirit when you believe. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't even know to believe if the Holy Spirit didn't reveal Jesus and open your spiritual eyes and bring spiritual life to a dead person. Okay? And the only way you can live a life pleasing to God is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for a little theology tonight. And just give us appetites to get into your word. As we said at the beginning, the most exciting thing in the Christian life is not getting knocked over or zapped or experiencing watching fire come down from heaven or speaking in tongues or all these things as wonderful as they might be. But it comes from being saturated with your word and allowing it to be lived out in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit seven days a week, 24-7. Lord, we just present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Take our lives, and may they be weapons of righteousness. May we, may we be people who advance your kingdom through your power and strength for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thanks for being here tonight.